Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Where do you take your questions? Uh, I mean, the real questions, the serious questions that they really shape our lives, or the, the questions that emerge from the shaping of our lives. Where do you take your doubts? The kinds of questions that may call into questions, the very framework of, of the way things are, of your existence, of the order of the universe, and why God does what God does. I mean, for some, you know, it, it seems a little irreverent to ask, questions of God. For some, some believe that, that, that you keep your doubts to yourself and that it's crossing the line to raise a question or to, to voice your own skepticism or fear or even anger about the way things are. Do you believe that? I hope not. You know, because, because the truth is we're, we're made in such a way as to notice and observe and then cry out when we see the things that we notice and observe out of order. According to Barna, two-thirds of those who call themselves believers or devout persons of faith, two-thirds confess that at some point or another in their life they, they have real doubt that they, they experience real serious questions of faith. And all of us knows someone, right, who, who maybe has left the faith because they had all of these concerns, questions, uncertainties, even doubts, but they had no place to put them and no safe environment in which to ask them even in the face of God. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, The Reason for God, has these words to say about it. A faith without some doubts is, is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Isn't that great? People who blithely go through life too busy or, or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart cynic or skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. So what do you do with yours? See, the book of Job is a book filled with questions. 
serious questions about the way things are and the order of the universe and why things happen the way they do questions. 330 questions to be exact. More questions in the book of Job than any other book of the Bible. Questions like why do bad things happen to good people and why do the innocent suffer? And, and so many of the questions that get raised in the book of Job actually end up never really being answered, including the biggest overarching kind of meta question of it all. Is God just? See, the book of Job is about a man, a good man, who lost everything. In fact, he's a good man not because I said he was a good man or or the opinion was such, but God himself in the narrative with God's own mouth says that there is no one like this man. He's righteous, upright, feared God, and, and turned away from evil all the time. In fact, it was said of Job that there was no one like him in all the east. And then he lost everything. I mean, despite how he had ordered his life and despite how well he behaved or how righteous he was, despite how kind he was to those who worked for him and his family, he lost it all. He lost his property and his livestock. He lost his children in this terrible, horrific accident. And then he has this disease that last week we found him sitting on the ash heap, literally disintegrating back into dust and ash. He had lost it all. And then these friends come along to comfort him, good friends who, who meant well. And last week we said how they, they did so well. I mean, for like three verses, they were awesome. <laughs> for three verses. Because for those three verses, they simply sat with him on the ash heap of suffering and they they harnessed the power of their presence and silence. But then in chapter three, when Job opens his mouth and actually begins to ask questions, when he rages against the circumstance that had come to his life, when he shakes his fist toward the heavens and he questions God and accuses God of letting the order of the universe come out of order, it makes them nervous. In fact, his friends begin to debate with him about the way things are. For 29 chapters, there are these cycles of dialogues between Job and his friends, and his friends are defending God. Have you ever met somebody who who thought they could defend God? Somebody who, who, who thought somehow that they were the ones qualified to speak on behalf of the Almighty and defend God against whatever it was that was making them nervous. Do you know how you defend God? <laughs> you defend God the way you defend a roaring lion. <laughs> you just get out of the way. But for 29 chapters, Job would rant and rage and he would lament. And last week we talked about how lament is simply naming the thing that has gone out of order in life. And then in their own awkwardness, nervousness, they would debate with him back and forth, back and forth. Until ultimately, 
Job's frustration grew. It emerged so it, it boiled over a bit to the point that he was frustrated with going nowhere with his friends and be, began to actually articulate a desire to call God on the carpet. There is emerging in these 29 chapters, uh, I love the way that my, my Hebrew the Bible professor referred to it back in the day in Richmond years ago. He said, if you pay attention to these 29 chapters that emerge, you'll notice a kind of language of litigation where Job is attempting to call God to court so that in the context of a courtroom, God will explain what it is that God has been up to in allowing these things to happen, to transpire in Job's life. Listen to the way Job expresses his desire in chapter 6, verse 2. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. I love this image. What's happening here is Job says, look, I want you to think of the scales that are, well, you and I think about the scales of justice in a courtroom. He's talking about the scales of commerce, right, where you weigh out the product and you weigh out the, the shekels or whatever it is that you're paying with, and you got to make sure that it's equal. But in terms of the scales of justice, the image is provocative. He says it's as if, you were to put on one side of the scales what I have done wrong in this life. All of my iniquities, all of my, my troubles, my sins, the, the ways in which I have violated the covenant, right? But on the other side of the scale, it's as if you were to put all of my calamity and the punishment that I've endured and all that I've gone through, my suffering and misery, and you would see that at the end of that comparison, there is no comparison, for my calamity would be weightier than even the sands on the seas. And we step back from reading that passage, and we, and we ask along with Job, is this justice? I mean, is, is this God, the way you had ordered the universe, <laughs> where even the righteous would suffer with such calamity, such, such suffering and anguish that the, the, the troubles that we endure far outweigh any kind of way in which I tried to order my life. Because why would I even try to order my life and behave and honor you and, and treat others fairly and love my neighbor if I'll do all that blamelessly, as you say, God, and yet still experience suffering i back away from that image in job and it's just provocative to me because does this look at all like you have ever felt in your journey i mean have you ever gone through a season where you you tried to do everything right Ever gone through a, a period of your life where you, you thought you were doing everything you were supposed to be doing? You were loving your family. You were faithful. You were serving your neighbors. You were serving your church. You were doing all the things that you thought your maker wanted from you, and yet it didn't stop the disease. 
It didn't stop the bankruptcy. It didn't stop your partner in business from, from committing a crime against you or, or turning his back on you and betraying you. It, has this ever looked like your life has felt? Because if so, man, have you got a friend in Job? And throughout these 29 chapters, chapter 3 all the way through chapter 31, Job continues with the language of litigation because all Job wants is for God to explain why it is that the universe is ordered this way. And so we pick up in chapter 13 and we hear Job's words, look, my eye has seen all this. He's talking to his friends at this point. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, he says to his friends, but but I, I would speak to the Almighty. Yeah, I'd have that audacity to speak to the Almighty and watch for the language of litigation. Watch this. And I desire to argue my case with God. Hmm. As for you, you whitewash with lies. All of you are worthless physicians. Every one of you lousy comforters as we examined last week. If you would only keep silent, I love that. Keep your mouth shut, that would be your wisdom. That was the best thing that you could do is keep your mouth shut. Hear now my reasoning and listen to the pleadings of my lips. How do you plead in this courtroom of the cosmos? How do you plead? Well, listen and you will hear the pleadings of my lips. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Listen carefully to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. I have indeed prepared my case. I know that I have or I shall be vindicated. Who is there to contend with me? Do you see the energy of this emerging desire for God to show up and to face Job like a man? I'll see you in court. He continues in chapter 23, I would lay my case before him. Do you hear the language still? Language of litigation. I'd lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he has or he, what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? In other words, would, he, would, would I have a, a chance? Would I stand a chance? No. Who can compare to his power? No, but he would give me heed. He would give heed to me. He would hear me, see. There an upright person could reason with him, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. Let me be weighed in the honest scales, and God will know I am blameless. Do you hear the passion and honesty, the transparency? It's not as if Job was saying, look, I... I don't deserve to receive punishment for my sin. What Job was struggling was with was, was, what have I done? What is my sin? Tell me, and I will take account for it. And all through these 29 chapters, the language of litigation continues to emerge and become stronger and stronger, especially when you get around chapter 29, 30, and 31. It's there in those three chapters that it kind of raises to a fevered pitch. And Job 
begins to send his issued subpoena to the heavens. In fact, as the beginning of chapter 31 begins, there are like 14 oaths that Job makes. 14 oaths, as in, you know, I swear to tell the whole truth, right? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 14 oaths that correspond with 14 of the most notable sins or violations of covenant known in Job's world. And with each one, he addressed each one by saying, look, I, I give my word that I have, I've not committed uh, falsehood in business or lust. I've not oppressed a worker 14 times. He gives an oath in chapter 31. And then toward the end of chapter 31, it, it moves to a fevered pitch where where we hear these words in chapter 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps a prince. I, I would face him like a, like a prince. I would face him knowing, knowing who I was contending with. And here's this image of Job at the end of 31. Literally the image that is, that is, that is painted for the reader is Job is standing at the door of heaven. And with one hand he's, he's beating on, the heaven, on heaven's door. And with the other hand he's holding this subpoena that he's issuing to God. He literally says, here is my signature. I want to hear the indictment against me. I'll see you in court. <laughs> Can I ask you, have you ever come close to getting that honest with the one who made you? I mean, if you could subpoena God, if you could could have an audience with the Almighty and raise some questions about the way things are, what would you ask? What questions would you ask and what, what doubts would you voice? What rage would you lament? Right? Most of the time we, we avoid that kind of transparency because we believe it's out of order. But the truth is, you and I, we do have an audience with the Lord. You and I know that because of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, then every perceived barrier of separation has been removed. And there is at present, in those who are in Christ, there is at present within you this spirit that intercedes with groanings too deep for words, you actually can rage and rant and you can lament before the one who made you because he knows you. And Job, Job believes that he can because he believes that's how we're made. So there's an interesting place around about chapter 7 in Job. And around 7, uh, chapter 7, around verse 15, 16, 17, we hear Job say something that if you're not really paying attention, you just kind of blow right by it. We pick it up in chapter 
7, verse 17, and he says these words. He says, what are human beings that you make so much of them, that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll read through that and we'll assume that Job is just kind of ranting like he has been. You know, what's wrong with you, my friends? And what's wrong with God? And why does, is the universe set up this way? And by, while, while we're at it, what are human beings that, that you're mindful of them? What are mortals that you care for them, right? But the truth is that that language shows up somewhere else in Scripture. And there is, if we uncover it, there is a, a pretty compelling connection to the book of Psalms. If we turn to the book of Psalms and read in Psalm chapter 8, we hear these words. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes. You silence the enemy and avenger. And then these words, when I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them, yet you have made them a little lower than God? Now in your translation, it, it may even say you, you have made them a little lower than the angels, or you may have a translation that says, you have made them a little lower than the divine beings. But in the Hebrew Bible, and in this translation, you have made them, your human beings, a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. And check out this language. All sheep and oxen, also beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Where have you heard language like that before? Birds of the air, fish of the sea. Where else but in the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, verse 27 then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And there is, in the witness of sacred scripture, this, well, this high regard that scripture has for human beings. I mean, it's, it's, it's true that you and I often think we cannot voice our complaint to God or be candid with God because we're just a bunch of sinners, we're low, we're just worms, you know, we, we cannot possibly muster the, and that's true, we are sinners. But we often forget that we became sinners upon the fall in chapter three, but the story begins in chapter one where we are created in God's own image, and it is very good. And the psalmist echoes with what are mortals, that you are mindful of them. You have made them 
just a little lower than God. And so the witness of Scripture is that you are made beautiful and made strong and glorious and crowned, according to sacred Scripture, crowned with glory. And so what's the point? Job knows this. And in Job's anguish, in almost a kind of sarcastic, skeptical kind of tone, in his rant, he says, you know what, what are human beings that you're mindful of them? Because in the back of his consciousness, he knows what you and I know, and that is that we're made in God's image and made just a little lower than God and, and given dominion and power and crowned with glory. But in one place in Job, he says, my crown has been removed. What are human beings? Why do you make so much of us if all you're going to do is crush us? See, Job asks these questions again and again throughout sacred scripture, throughout his story, because he believes you can. In fact, for Job, there could be no more human thing to do than to raise questions before God. Because in so doing, what you are attempting to embody is this awareness that you have made me, you have ordered the universe, and it is good. And I believe that it is good and orderly and right and beautiful, and I'm a part of that. But something has gone clearly wrong, and I voice my protest, and I need you to explain it to me because of my belief in you. See, for Job, there could be nothing more human more appropriate than to voice our questions before God. When was the last time that you were that candid with God? When was the last time that you, you voiced your, your protest, that you asked the question, why is this happening? Understanding exactly what Job understood, and that is, yeah, he can crush me. I belong to him, but I, on my way down, I need him to speak to me. During the Holocaust, there was a, uh, uh, a concentration camp at Auschwitz. And Auschwitz, the Jews who were being held there in, um, in captivity and preparation for their extermination, the Jews at Auschwitz conducted a trial. They put God on trial. And three rabbis debated between themselves about whether God was guilty of committing crimes against humanity. Yeah, yeah. At the end of their debate, they determined that he was guilty. Guilty. God of crimes against humanity. But the word that they used was not guilt. The word that was actually used in their verdict on this mock trial was chayev, which translates, he owes us something. Job felt like God owed him something, not owed him his property back, not owed him his cattle, his livestock, not that he owed him his children back or even his own health back because all of those things belong to God in the beginning and they will belong to God in the end. But what Job 
believed that God owed Job was an explanation. And he wanted to have the conversation in court. So he stands there with this subpoena and he calls God to court because he wants to charge him with crimes against humanity. And if God speaks, there's a choice. God could show up and God could prove Job wrong and Job could go to sleep and descend into Sheol and that would be the end of Job. But if, if God doesn't show up, if God doesn't defend, then in Job's mind, God is guilty. So what Job wants to do is put him on the witness stand and literally ask him a barrage of questions. Questions like, and I, and I can't help but hear it you know, with the, the tone of like every like TV or movie courtroom scene. You know, is it not true that you perform wondrous and mighty deeds? Is it not further true that you created humankind out of the dust of the earth? Is it not true? to this witness on the witness stand, right? Is it not true that, that you created these human beings in your own image and made them according to your holy word a little lower than yourself? Is that not true? Is it not the case that you have crowned them with honor and glory and you esteem them with dignity and your own likeness? Well, then if it's true, then why? Why have you chosen to oppress the very works of your hands? I love what my professor one day said. Is it not true that, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills, according to the psalmist? If so, why take everything that ever mattered to Job? See, when was the last time you mustered the audacity to ask God something that in your face. Listen, if you're uncomfortable with this kind of thinking that we can address God and, and call out to God and be that transparent with God, I get it. <laughs> Me too. Because there's a little bit of all of Job's friends inside all of us. We all feel like there's, like there's a line you can come up to with God in terms of being intimate and connected and transparent, and yet Job, Job says, no. He has made us with, with his own hands, and he has set the universe into a particular order, and when it's out of order, our lament names the very thing that's out of order. And so he calls out the same word that later those suffering in Auschwitz would call out, you owe me something of an explanation. Now, one of the young Jews in the room there at Auschwitz, who, who was an eyewitness to the mock trial that they, that they held for God in the midst of their absolute horrific suffering, one of the young men was named Elie Wiesel. And Elie became uh, a noted uh, writer and poet and uh, Holocaust survivor, and in his book entitled Night, this is what he said. Human beings raise themselves to God 
by the questions they ask. And I just wonder if you have had within your heart this question that you needed to ask God for some time but were afraid to do so or didn't know the words to use, didn't know quite the language that would be appropriate. I'll tell you what the language is, honesty. Transparency. And in following the example of Job, we too may may find something at the end even better than answers. Don't forget the story is going somewhere. Because in the coming weeks, God shows up and God speaks and Job hears from the witness on the witness stand and Job receives a kind of transformation that no answer could have provided him. But Job mustered the courage and the faith to ask the questions. The German poet Rilke had this to say about asking the questions. I beg you to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were like locked rooms or books written in in a very foreign language. Don't just search for the answers which which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. The point is, live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually and without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Is this why our Lord Jesus called us to ask and to seek and to knock. For everyone who asks, an answer will be given. Everyone who seeks, they'll find. And everyone who knocks, the door will fling open. But it's in the asking. And my my beloved sisters and brothers, my message to you this day on Labor Day weekend, when we're trying to find some rest from the weariness of our bodily fatigue and our mental, emotional, psychological, maybe even spiritual fatigue, my call to you is this. Ask the question. Live the questions. Because in seeking an answer from the Lord, what we end up receiving in the end, which is even better than an answer, is company with the divine. So maybe where you are today, somebody needs to pray something like this. God, I don't know if it's appropriate or not. I don't know if it's even in bounds to to talk to you this way. But I don't understand part of what's happened in my life. I don't understand why I lost the things I lost. I, I don't understand why calamity, struggle, the woundedness that I bear, I don't know why it came but I'll confess any sin that I can take ownership over. And I ask you to forgive me for my sins, to, to cleanse me of my, my own unrighteousness. But Lord, in seeking to understand, speak to me. Tell me if, if there is some wicked way in me, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, and then lead me 
to a way that is everlasting. For I open myself up to you. I yield myself to the possibility that maybe I'm not seeing the big picture. That maybe you see more than I see. And so I humbly yield myself to you. And I pray that you would receive me even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Listen, my friend, if you've come to a place today where you're hearing my words and there's something resonating with you, if you at least connect on a base kind of gut level with the reality that you've been carrying around some doubts, some questions, and you didn't know where to put it, if nothing else, I pray that today you know you can lay it at the feet of the Master. You can bring it to Him, and He will give you rest. I encourage you to stay with us in this study of Job because in the coming days, God shows up. And God addresses the very anguish, the rage, the lament that Job has had the faith to articulate. And you won't want to miss it. But wherever it is that you go from this place, I pray that, that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. That Christ would go behind you on the days that you feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you from, from within, removing all forms of fear, but mostly may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his.